Boom. Welcome back to the We Know Ball podcast. Had to take a little week off here. I was on vacation and Gavin was taking care of business at work, but we got a packed show for you guys today. We're breaking down the trade deadline, hopping on some NFL storylines, obviously a lot of running back drama and stuff going on in training camp right now. A couple college football headlines, John Harbaugh gets suspended, and then the Pac-12 preview. Gavin, I'm excited for this show, man. I couldn't be more excited, Jasper. Pac-12 talk just gets me going. Oh, yeah. This division is going to be unreal this year. But before we can get into that, we got to talk the MLB trade deadline. Huge moves this week. A lot of teams vying for position. How do you think the Reds fared? Us and the Yankees were the two biggest losers of the deadline, in my opinion, by far. Uh, Easily. Um, I mean, all we needed was one arm. One arm, one starter, bolster that rotation. We're going to have Hunter coming back. We're going to have Nick Lodolo coming back. And we just sat on our heels. The Brewers made some moves. They went out and got some aging bats in Santana and Canna. And then they bolstered their own bullpen with Chafin, which yep. is a bullpen that didn't need any bolstering, but they still went ahead and got it. The Cubs went out and got their guy. They got Jimer. And again, Cincinnati sat on their heels and didn't do anything. I think if we went out and got that starter, we'd be the clear-cut frontrunners to win this division right now. Yeah, and I kind of want to compare your trade deadline woes to what happened with the Giants. They made a weird move for A.J. Pollock and then just did not get a starter at all. And obviously, they beat the Diamondbacks today, another close game, another successful bullpen game for them. But I just don't know how much longer that's going to hold up for them, especially as we get into these dog days of August. Yeah, and especially considering the moves that their division mates made. You look at the Dodgers, who I actually think were another loser coming out of the deadline. They did not get their starter, but they're still the Dodgers. You look at the yeah. Diamondbacks, they got their closer. They got a bat in Tommy Pham, and the Padres said, we are not going to be sellers. We want to make the postseason this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest winners of the trade deadline, though, come out of the AL West easily. The Rangers went shopping. Jordan Montgomery and Chris Stadden from the Cards. Max Scherzer from the Mets, and the Mets are in $3.51 million of that salary. And, I mean, the Rangers needed starting pitching. Obviously, Evaldi and Dunning have begun to plateau a little bit, and they're committed to chasing the title this year. I mean, I think they gave up a pretty good amount for what they got, but overall, I think Scherzer and Jordan Montgomery are going to be mainstays in this rotation come October. Yeah, Scherzer is going to be what they thought DeGrom was going to be before he went on the Tommy John list, but... They've got a historic offense, one that only comes around every so often and hats off to them for wanting to put all the pieces together and go for it this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Astros are another team that made tons of moves. I mean, grabbing Kendall Graveman was huge. And of course, Justin Verlander, the big marquee grab of this trade deadline. And another guy who the Mets are paying 58% of his contract. So looking forward here, I think... Two big takeaways for me from this trade is it shows the Astros are committed to winning this division. And two, I mean, they added the rotation depth they needed. Obviously, Framer Valdez threw that no-hitter, but if I was looking at that rotation right now, I did not see a clear-cut guy who I know I can hand the ball to in a big game in October. I agree. The Astros financed their re-signing of Justin Verlander through Steve Cohen. It's so funny. Oh, yeah. But I think, obviously, the Verlander deal is going to be the one everyone talks about. They gave up a lot in that deal. They gave up Drew Gilbert, their number one guy in the farm system, and Ryan Clifford, who is their number four guy. The Kendall Graveman deal isn't going to get enough love. He's going to be dominant for them down the stretch. Oh, yeah. He's that guy coming out of the bullpen, pair him with Presley back there, and they don't just want to win the West. They want to get back to the World Series, represent the AL, and take on most likely the, most likely the Atlanta Braves and see if they can go back to back. Yeah, definitely. And another team that made a big move, and we were all we've been talking about this the Pad Two podcast is 
the O's grabbing Jake Flaherty. I'm pretty excited for this move. I mean, this is a guy who's coming off an injury, hasn't really been able to find that number one starter groove he had a couple of years ago. But for you, is this a guy the O's believe they can really turn around and carry this team? Or is this just a makeup for missing out on Justin Verlander? I wouldn't even call it a makeup. I would call this a great get for the Orioles because he does not need to be that guy for them. Sure, he'll be the number one starter on paper, but that bullpen's dominant. You got Bautista and Cano back there, best one-two punch in baseball. And the offense is top five in baseball also. So you put Flaherty in a great spot where he doesn't have to be the perennial all-star that he was used to being in St. Louis, and he should thrive. Yeah, and I mean, he pitched really well today, I thought, in his first start out there against the Blue Jays. Um, The Blue Jays, another team that kind of went shopping here, grabbing Hicks and DeJong from the Cardinals. And I really just, I don't know how these moves really help them. They help them stay above the Angels, and that's really what they were trying to do. You look at that AL wildcard race, and it's tight. Tampa Bay, Houston, they're going to be in the postseason. We know that. It's a race for that third and final spot. And it's a race between Toronto, Boston, the Yankees, and the Angels. Mm-hmm. So for Toronto, who's currently sitting in that spot, two games up on Boston, to go out and add Hicks and DeYoung to bolster the bullpen in the lineup, good moves. They also got Genesis Cabrera from the from the Cardinals. They, they just totally Oh, I skipped over that one. That's a huge boost for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the Rays. They, I think, got one of the biggest deals done here in grabbing Savali from the Guardians. Obviously, they had to give up Kyle Manzato who I think is a really good prospect, but has been hurt. So I don't really know how that factors into the Guardians' future, especially if you're looking for guys who can contribute right away or guys you can kind of get major league reps with. But I think Savali is a huge pickup for a Rays rotation that needs another guy because their depth has been lacking lately. They've got the injury bug like no other team in baseball, especially the starting starting pitcher position. Savali is a great grab. He's got a sub-3 ERA since the month of June. That's two full months of sub-3 ERA baseball. One of the best pitchers in baseball in that time. Like you said, how to give up Manzardo, but the Rays offense doesn't need any help right now. I like that get for him. Yeah, definitely. And jumping over to the NL East, another division where you got a lot of teams vying for playoff spots right now. The Marlins added to their... Uh, they got the, they got that first base hole locked up now. They finally got rid of Garrett Cooper, and they added both Josh Bell and Jake Berger, two guys who can thump the baseball. And then jumping over the Phillies, they add Michael Lorenzen, who pitched phenomenally today in that series for them. Which of these teams do you think came away and with a better chance to take on that next wild card spot? I love what the Phillies did, getting Lorenzen and also picking up Rodolfo Castro from the Pirates. That's another move that's going to yeah. – that's going to fly under the radar, and – that's huge, especially when you're not getting what you expected to get out of Trey Turner, adding another infield bat. Going to be huge for them down the stretch. They're currently one game up on Milwaukee for that second wild card spot, one and a half games up in Miami for that third. They should be good coming down the stretch. I expect Philly to be back in the postseason. Yeah, same. And I love, like, I like the Marlins a lot, obviously, but I think they're still maybe a year away from being serious contenders. And that's just because they got the injury bug. But obviously, getting Jazz Chisholm back is huge for them. I just think that the the one, two, three punch of Nola, Wheeler, and Lorenzen is going to be huge for the Phillies coming down the stretch. It's going to be really tough for opposing hitters to face those three, not to mention Christopher Sanchez, who has been really good during the month yep. of July as a lefty sinker baller. I think the Phillies are a dangerous, dangerous ball club. Yeah, so let's jump over to the NL West now. Arizona finally got their closer in Paul Seawald and added a bat. I like Tommy Pham, and I'll get into this move a little more later because I think it's one of the more underrated moves of the deadline. He's been struggling a little bit in his last 15 games, but I think that's a veteran bat you add to that offense. As their rookie guys are kind of starting to slow down a little bit in the outfield, that's going to be huge for them coming down the stretch. 
Yeah, the Diamondbacks, I put them in the same category as the Reds and the Marlins in the fact that they're probably a year or two away from their full potential. But you got to, as a player, you got to love what the front office went on and did. They said, we're going to win this year. We want to be in the postseason. You go out and get Tommy Pham. You go out and you get your closer. I love what they did, especially with the Giants sitting on their heels, not doing anything at the deadline. Love to see the Diamondbacks make some moves. Yeah, what, what were the Giants thinking? I mean, I feel like you have this three-starter rotation, and then you're playing around. Like when we mentioned this earlier, you're playing around with this opener, but their guys, their bullpen has been throwing a lot lately. They're going to be tired in August and September when they're going to need to win games if they want to lock up this division. Because I think if they want to grab a starter, I think they had the potential to catch the Dodgers, given how bad the Dodgers did at this deadline. I agree, and it baffles me as well that the Giants sat on their heels Like you said, bullpen's going to get tired. The bats are super young. They're only two and a half games back in the West right now. Would not be surprised to see them fall out of playoff contention come year's end. No, 100%. I mean, they're starting Isan Diaz at second base right now, and he just got his first hit of the season. Very questionable stuff from the Giants. I I don't know how this, you know, affects their potential going after Shohei this offseason or what, what the thought process is there, but I would have expected them to make some more moves than just grabbing A.J. Pollock. Yeah, that was weird. And then easily grabbing Mark Mathias, who was cut by the Pirates earlier in the year, is just mind-blowing. But speaking of mind-blowing, the Dodgers, I think they did just enough, but they missed out on the big splash, which is going to be tough for them. They they had their guy. They had him. They had a yeah. done deal with the Tigers. Erod and Juan Rodriguez was coming over. He was going to be wearing Dodger blue until he wasn't. Yeah. He exercises his no-trade clause, says, I'm not going to L.A., I was reading that it had to do with wanting to stay close to his family on the East Coast, which yeah. you can't blame the guy. It's his decision at the end of the day, but it seems like a two-month vacation is what it would have been in L.A. Yeah. It would have been the end of the world. But from the Dodgers, you miss your guy. They're in talks on getting Dylan Cease. They miss him, and they yeah. end up with Ryan Yarbrough from the Royals. Absolute failure from the Dodgers at the deadline. Yeah, and Lance Lynn, I like the move, but I don't love it. He's not a guy that's going to be a difference maker. I mean, you're chasing a pennant, right? You're going to have to go through the Braves if you want to do that. And the pitching just wasn't there. The Erod situation, as you said, is very interesting to me because we we all saw that no trade clause news, and we thought, oh, man, is this is this just like a guy sticking it to L.A.? But I read today that he actually wanted to add an extra year and $20 million to his contract in order to go to L.A. I think L.A. would have paid him that. Maybe not the $20 million, but L.A. would have given him some money to show up there and pitch for them down the stretch. No, 100%. And yeah, as we said, this is the deadline where there were a lot of great moves, but I feel like it was also a deadline that was defined by the people who weren't traded. I think Erod's one of those guys. Dylan Cease is one of those guys. Michael Kopech, Luis Severino, all guys I thought that were going to get dealt that just weren't. Especially Dylan Cease. The yeah. the King's ransom that would have came with trading Dylan Cease, you, the White Sox missed out. The fact that he's still on the South side is flat out awful from the White Sox front office. The Orioles said... Screw it. We're going to get our guy in Flaherty and said, OK, Dodgers, go ahead and have cease. And the Dodgers couldn't close the deal. I don't know whose fault that was, but I'm baffled that Dylan Cease is still in a White Sox, White Sox uniform. Yeah, and White Sox clearly one of the biggest losers. But let's jump into some of the biggest winners of this deadline. And I got a couple that might surprise you. I'm going to start with teams located in Texas. This one's not surprising at all, but both teams made the moves necessary to get out of that West. And I think it's just going to be a bloodbath in these matches in September. We saw it get a little fiery with Avisiel Garcia and that home run Trotty did. This is going to be some fun baseball coming down the stretch down in Texas. Yeah, and I think they cement themselves, the two Texas teams, as clear-cut front runners in the AL now. I think even in front of the Rays and the Orioles, 
just because of the huge splashes they made, power offenses. Jordan Alvarez is back for the Astros. That is huge for them. The AL West is the clear winner of the deadline. 100%. Now, this one might surprise you, but I actually have the Mets down here as a winner. And let me tell you why. For Stevie, it's okay to say some things aren't working, and I think this is one of them. I would have rather seen him sell at the deadline and get some guys that can make contribution going forward than go all in on this and just make a huge mistake. Instead of making a bad situation worse, they made the moves they are going to set them up for the future. I think the Braves are really good. The Phils and the Finns both have this division and a stronghold. It's going to be tough to get any guy at this deadline who is really going to be a difference maker for them. And I think Gilbert and Acuna are the types of players that can really help this team going forward for years to come. I have the Mets as losers on my list, not because of the haul they got back. I agree with you there. The haul that they got for all the people they traded, phenomenal. Only because this was their year, right? This this was the year the Mets were going to be the team. They were going to be biggest payroll in baseball, go out and dominate and win a World Series, and it imploded. Yep. Another reason why I don't believe that this is going to work out, I don't believe that they're bringing in these guys to keep them. I think Steve Cohen has other intentions in mind, and it may revolve around Shoei Otani this offseason, going after him, offering a lot of money, not saying he'll take it, but I have a sneaking suspicion that he will be offered as much money as a human being can give from the New York Mets and wouldn't be surprised to see them ship off some of these new new prospects at next year's deadline. Yeah, I don't doubt it at all. And I think the funniest thing for me about the Mets right now is every time like one of their upper management guys, whether it's Epler or Cohen, addresses the media, they're always wearing a Mets hat and just delivering the worst possible news to this fan base. It's so funny to see. And I think they I saw a report that they were thinking about like throwing this year away and then throwing 2025 away and then looking to compete in 2026, which just isn't happening. You know, Stevie's opening that pocketbook right back up this offseason and going for another championship. There are some ball clubs or some fan bases across America that would kill to have Steve Cohen as an owner. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, exactly. And my last winner is the Angels. Did they make the biggest moves? No, but they got a lot with a little. And I think... I really like the ads of Gritchick and Crone. I like the ads of Giolito and Lopez. Giolito got shelled the other day, which is what it is. But you know what? Fuck it. I like this team telling Shohei, hey, we want you to stay. We want to compete. We want to keep you here in Anaheim. And is it going to work out? Probably not. But I like the sentiment. So I'm going to give the Angels a win at the deadline. I have them as a winner in my book, too. And it's because as a fan, you got to love what they did. They want to keep Shohei. They're trying their best to keep him. The problem is if they don't make the postseason this year, they just set their franchise back a decade. Their farm system was non-existent to begin with, and it is completely depleted now. Yeah. Good luck winning without Shohei next year and with no incoming talent in the farm system if they don't make the postseason this year. Yeah, it's pretty tough. But, uh, I mean, the Angels, they're going to do what they got to do to keep Shohei, and they're trying. So I got to applaud them for it. Jumping into the lose of the deadline, I'm starting with the AL Central, and that's everyone in this division. Cleveland threw in the towel like a game back. They traded for two prospects who are hurt. The White Sox made some moves, but it's not enough to get this franchise in the right direction. The Twins were rumored to be sellers for some reason, which is just crazy. You're leading the division, and of course, Detroit didn't trade enough. Couldn't agree with you more in every aspect. The Twins are sitting up top, albeit at a 500 record. They didn't do anything. I actually think that's what they should have done is sit there and not do anything. Their team is fine in that division right now to go out there and make the postseason. They know that they know they're not winning a World Series this year. They're content with that. The White Sox, the fact that Dylan C still wearing their jersey is just blasphemous. Yep. And yeah, the Tigers not shipping off Erod. 
they did ship off Lorenzen. That was a great, you know, great to see that. But Erod still wearing their those, you know, that tiger white and blue. You don't want to see that. Yeah, that's pretty tough. And then the next loser I have on this list is everyone on the in the NL Central not named the Cubs. The Cubs <laughs> have been blistering hot coming out of the break. Uh, they're four games at the time I was writing this. They were four games out of the Central. Now I think they're down to three. Yeah. I love the Candelario deal for them. I think he's a tremendous player and he's made an impact right away. I think he had four hits yesterday. Cincy, I like the Sam Mall move, but if you want to take this division, you had to do a little more for me. And then just a classic Brewers deadline. Add mediocre to above average bats for Barry Little. And then, of course, the Pirates and the Cards threw in the towel. Yep. Pirates, Cards throw in the towel. They're not going to compete anytime soon. Brewers hit the nail on the head, adding some okay talent. Nothing right home about. The Reds, in my estimation, other than the Yankees, biggest loser of this deadline. And that pains me to say as a Reds fan. The Cubs, get your futures tickets in now because that Jimer trade was probably my favorite of the deadline. Yeah, I think the Cubs, and I said this, I think I texted Liam after he made that bet with you, and I said, watch out for the Cubs, man. They are going to come for this division, and we'll see how it goes. Obviously, they got a little work to do, and Marcus Stroman needs to start pitching a little better, especially after he was so good for them and a big reason why they're in this position to begin with. But yeah, I'm excited to see how the Central pans out. I think this is going to be a three-team race coming down to the last week of the season. It could be really exciting. It's going to be very exciting, actually. And nobody thought that was the case a month ago when it was Reds and Brewers dogfighting for who is less worse. But the Cubs the Cubs are in this mix now, very much so. They, they've scored 100 and almost 150 runs since the All-Star break. Over 40 runs more than the next closest person, next closest team. They added Jimer. They've got two guys that are going to finish top 10 in the Cy Young voting. Watch out for the guys on the north side. Watch out for the guys on the north side. The last loser I have on this list, and I'm just kind of let us go. We're just going to tee off on the Dodgers here. What the fuck were you guys thinking? Lance Lynn isn't enough. I like the Rosario trade. I think that's a good pickup for them. Kike's a fun story, but this team's not going to beat the Braves. And even more importantly, it's not going to outpitch the Braves. Like... You came into the season with the expectation to win a World Series. You only have that Mickey Mouse World Series on your record thus far. What are you doing, Los Angeles? Big emphasis on Mickey Mouse World Series and taking that to my grave. What were they doing? That's that's really well, they they swung and missed, is what they did. They won the Erod, swung and missed. In talks with Cease, swung and missed. They end up with Yarbrough, Lance Lynn, Joe Kelly, Ahmed Rosario, Keegan Hernandez. Kike Hernandez, a guy who cannot hit right-handed pitching. He's only going to play against lefties. Yep. Ahmed Rosario, actually don't mind that trade. Syndergaard's terrible. Get him out of there. Get Ahmed Rosario in there. Add some speed to your lineup. Lance Lynn, I, I, I guess he's got the swing and miss factor, but when Austin Riley is putting those cutters on Venice Beach, it's not going to be very pretty. And go. same goes for Ryan Yarbrough. He's going to be lobbing up change-ups right there, and Acuna's going to be taking him 450 dead center. They can't compete with the Braves as as it stands right now. No, 100%. Any other teams you want to mention as losers from the deadline? If I haven't harped them enough, the Yankees. I mean, the team that needed, needed, needed bats, especially left field catcher. You can't rely on Aaron Judge. And until Stanton and Rizzo start swinging it like they did five years ago, their offense is going to be bottom third of the league for the rest of the season. And all you do is go out and get Keenan Middleton. To bolster a bullpen that's already halfway decent doesn't make any sense to me, especially in a division where they are in last place right now and fighting for a wild card spot. Yeah, 100%. And I expect them to be in on Carlson. I expect to be in on Gritchick. I expect them to be in on some catching help as well. 
obviously didn't make any of those moves, but I'm going to give Gian Carlos Santa a little credit here. Three home runs, Ben, 260 in his last seven, so he might be turning a corner here. But, yeah, the Yankees are in a bad spot. Rondon has not been the guy for them. They do get Nestor Cortez back soon, but, yeah, things are not looking good for the pinstripes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Wrapping out our MLB talk here with a couple more talking points, underrated moves of the deadline. What is your biggest underrated move of the deadline thus far? It's going to be Jimer Candelario and the Chicago Cubs, and the reason being – they got him hitting the, in the seventh and eighth hole right now. As, as a Reds fan, I've been watching these games close. That lineup hits well. Talkman, yeah. Horner, Swanson, Bellinger, been the best hitter in baseball for the He's past He's fully month. back, I'm going to say it. Cody Bellinger, He's fully, fully back. back. And you add in Jimer Candelario, and as I already mentioned, to a team that has two top 10 Cy Young candidates. That yeah. move is going to fly under the radar. And when the Cubs win the Central, it's going to be looked at as a great move. Another one that I will highlight that everyone's going to forget about because it happened in the month of June, but I still classify it as a deadline move. The Rangers getting enrolled as Chapman. I yep. think that is potentially the best trade of this deadline. And they got him for a bag of chips. He's going to be a guy that bolters that bullpen, supports the offense, supports the new starters with Montgomery and Scherzer. Great move. Obviously, I think the Rangers are built to take on the Astros, and we already mentioned this. That is going to be some fun September baseball. For me, the underrated moves of the deadline come for two teams that aren't really competing. Well, the Boston Red Sox are still in this, but the Boston Red Sox sneakily grabbed Luis Urias from Milwaukee. And I think this is a guy that Milwaukee has given up on a little soon. He's coming off a major bad injury. He's shown he can do it in the past, 23 home runs in, 20, in 2021, and he's only 26. Like, I think Luis Urias still has plenty left in the tank, and especially with the Trevor Story situation and the inconsistencies in the middle of the infield, this is a guy who could hold it down in Boston and I think really make a major impact later in this year, if not next season. Yeah, it's been sad to see Urias in Milwaukee and his time there just take a horrible turn this past year, get an option in AAA. But there's a team that could fix them as the Red Sox. I think a change of scenery will be great. You know, they've got a history of taking guys in, making them better hitters. Adam Duvall is the first thing that comes to mind. Yep. I think you're right. I think you're right. And then the other one is uh, the White Sox grabbed Luis Patino for the Rays for almost nothing. This is a guy who was a former centerpiece of the, day of the Blake Snell trade. And he's only 23, and he's going to get plenty of reps at the big league level with the White Sox. I think we could see Luis Patino turn it around a little bit down in the south side. Did you see what they acquired him for? Oh, was, I remember reading him being kind of it bad. Was, or give me it a was rush. cash. They, they bought him. They didn't trade anybody for him. They paid the raise cash for Luis yeah, Patino. That's right. That's right. Man, honestly, a lot of sneaky moves this deadline. I think it's going to go down as one of the most interesting in years. I think so, too, and only because – there is so much that can happen between now and October with how tight these wildcard races are. And there's a clear cut world series favorite and they're playing baseball in Atlanta right now. Yep. Right now it is the Braves versus everybody else. And it is really cool to see the door wide open for every team, not named the Atlanta Braves. Oh, absolutely. I'm so excited for this. And one of those teams I have kind of down here on my predictions list for being wide open. I think the angels make the playoffs. Granted, they just came off a series against the best team in baseball where they dropped two in a row, but they got some chance opportunities here against Seattle to really make some climbs in this division, this wild card race. And I have the Yankees missing the playoffs. I think the Angels might have a window here where they can jump in and win some games. And it'd be really cool to see them kind of take it to the playoffs and make Shohan, give Shohei a tougher decision than he has right now. I'm going to count you and say that the Angels will not make the playoffs. I Again, I applaud them for everything they did, trying to keep Shohei, bolstering that offense, bolstering that rotation, bolstering the bullpen. I just think they're too far back. And they're only three and a half games back of Toronto, but they're going to have to compete with 
Boston and Toronto. I think they'll leapfrog the Yankees. Seattle didn't make any splashes at the deadline. As a matter of fact, they sold. They should have no problem leapfrogging Seattle. Boston and Toronto are just playing too good a ball right now. They're too good a ball clubs that I don't think the Angels are going to have the easiest time leapfrogging them. Absolutely. And I think the Blue Jays just haven't peaked yet. I think they're still on their way up. Obviously, Alec Manoa just harpooning this year has been something horrible for them. But my last prediction here for Major League Baseball is I think we I truly believe we are going to see a sub 500 winner in the AL Central. I agree. I 1000% agree. The only reason the Twins would finish above 500 is that pitching, which is phenomenal. Yeah. But the hitting's abysmal. The rest so of the division is abysmal. The Twins are going to win the division. Yeah. The question is, what what's their record going to be? Yeah. And I mean, I think what they're doing to Byron Buck, they've completely killed Byron Buxton's confidence. It's crazy. They won't play him in the field. They're too scared of him getting hurt. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I think you ship him somewhere else and he finds incredible success. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to keep talking baseball here as things get going and the playoff race heats up, but we got to jump into the NFL because football is fully back. We have the Hall of Fame game today. DeMarcus Ware killed it with the national anthem. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it, we've had to watch Zach Wilson play for the first two quarters, and that is just horrible football. Nothing much we can do there. But we did miss some storylines in our time away, the biggest being Austin Eckler and his all-running backs meeting. Uh, so the <laughs> All the top running backs in the NFL held a meeting over Zoom last week. And Gavin, let me tell you how this meeting went. Everyone agreed this sucks and that it's unfair. They're getting all riled and mad. Austin Eckler stands up and he's like, what are we going to do about it? The room goes dead silent. What are they going to do about it? They, this thing probably lasted 15 to. minutes top. <laughs> I, I love mean. how it's it's the all running back meeting and it's it's like five of them. Austin Eckler, yeah. McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs, and nobody else they're in an unwinnable spot where teams don't value them as they probably should be valuing them. I can't say I blame the owners and GMs. I'd be doing the exact same thing. It's it's going to take a, a league-wide shift in some, some fashion to change this. And I know we floated around the idea of no rookie contracts for running backs. I also don't hate the idea of uh, raising the franchise tag minimum. I know it's been dropping the past couple of years, but to raise it up would probably be beneficial for the running back core. Even just getting rid of the franchise tag, I think, would be huge for them. I think the franchise tag has really been a major proponent of undervaluing running backs. Speaking of undervalued running backs, the big news this week as well, Jonathan Taylor has requested a trade out of Indy. He met with owner Jim Mersey last week about a new deal. Nothing came about. Now he's trying to get out of Indianapolis. And this has led to like probably my favorite all-time owner-player interaction ever. Uh, I love Jim Irsay. I'm going to be a Jim Irsay guy till I die. I love when he posts whether the roof is open or not on Twitter. And I feel like you have to be a little insane to be an owner in the NFL. And Jim Irsay just fits that bill entirely. His quote on the whole situation. If I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, no one's going to miss us. The league goes on. We know that. The National Football League rolls on. It doesn't matter who comes and goes. It's a privilege to be a part of it. So my biggest takeaway from this is basically Ursay is blaming corporate America for his inability to pay his running back. I think my biggest takeaway is Jonathan Taylor must be delusional. Does he think that going to a new team is going to help him get a contract long-term? Ursay <laughs> is not the only owner in football that's that's not going to pay him. Yeah. Whatever team he goes to will be there for a year, and then they'll say, okay, your time's up, bye-bye. He's He has not shown the ability to stay healthy. He's been hurt twice in his career this far. It's, it's been a three-year career. And yeah, yeah, he's not going to get paid. Must be delusional to think that some other team is going to pay him. 
Oh, 100%. And then things turned for the worst this week when ESPN reported that Taylor showed up to camp with a pre-existing back issue, and now the Colts are threatening to put him on the non-football injury list, which means he just won't get paid at all this season. Obviously, Taylor came out and he kind of refuted this report saying he's never had reports of back pain and never had any back pain. Check your sources. This situation is getting messy quick. I really, I mean, how do you see the situation playing out? With him staying in Indianapolis and toughing out the season, that that's what ends up happening with these running backs, unfortunately. Yeah. They get franchise tagged and, and they play. And because if they don't, they're never getting paid again. Yeah, no. And I think Jonathan Taylor is tough with Taylor because he was just such a bell cow at Wisconsin. Like the wear and tear he has to have on those treads is just it's unbelievable. Like it's too much for the NFL to be a guy who you count on solo, like to be the solo back there. You need I think Taylor would really benefit from being at a team where he's in a committee. And I just think even then he's not getting paid because he's going to be a part of a committee. Taylor's in the same boat as Josh Jacobs in the fact that their incredible production on the field has adverse effects on their negotiations with the front office, yeah. because no matter how well they perform, the argument's going to be, oh, well, you're going to wear down next year. We're not going to pay you. Speaking of Josh Jacobs, uh, I sent you this earlier in the week. The Raiders are just in complete disarray already a week <laughs> into training camp. I think they had to stop practice three times to run laps because of mistakes from the quarterback. And then they called it a no Connell, but he couldn't make any plays because he was already in a lap from a previous mistake. Oh, it's just great. I love this. I, this Raiders season is just going to be such a shit show. I'm so excited for it, but jumping into another shit show. That's already brewing. It's this Sean Payton and Jets situation with Aaron Rodgers. So USA today dropped a one-on-one interview with Sean Payton last week, where he basically just tore Nathaniel Hackett, a new one. And Sean Payton's never been a guy who's going to sugarcoat anything. He's a pretty off the cuff guy when it comes to the media. He loves that stuff. Um, but he said it was one of the worst coaching jobs he's ever seen in the NFL, which he's not entirely wrong, but you make a statement like that about a guy who just happens to coach Aaron Rodgers, you're going to get some pretty feisty responses. And Aaron Rodgers obviously called Payton insecure, way out of line, and ultimately the coat that got the most headlines, keep my coach's name out of your mouth. And I'm excited for this week five matchup between the Broncos and the Jets. It's going to be pure theater. They got each other week five. That is phenomenal. I mean, what, what's Sean Payton doing? There, there's this, this doesn't exist in, in football only, but there's an unwritten rule in amongst the coaching sphere. You don't talk shit about another coach, especially yeah. publicly and blast him like that. Was he wrong? No, but you, you just don't go out and do that to a guy who, as you said, is now working with in tandem with Aaron Rodgers over in New York. And who knows what he can do this year? I mean, Sean Penn is one of those guys who thinks he can take on anything, including the New York media. So I'm not really surprised by this, but it's still just a baffling move on his part. And now he has to back it up on the field, which I don't know what the Bron- like the Broncos are a big question mark for me this year. And we'll get obviously get to this more when we do a little NFL preview action. But yeah, I just I don't know what he has in the Broncos team. I think. Now that Russell Wilson isn't calling the shots in Denver, like things are going to improve a little bit, but I just, I really don't know what to make this Broncos team. You can only go up from where they were last season. So they should be better on paper. They didn't get any worse. Russell Wilson. I hope he takes a step in, in the right direction this year. I think Sean Payton just, he was trying to get his team fired up and went about it the wrong way because yeah. he's not only is he openly talking shit about other coaches, but he has also come out and said everything the Broncos did last year, we are going to do with the exact opposite. All he's trying to do is implement a new culture, which is basically the opposite of the old coach culture. 
And I think he went about it the wrong way, but what he's trying to do is the right thing. Yeah, and he needs, I think Sean Payne just needs to stick to the film room because that's where he does his best work. <laughs> he puts together these uh, hype videos for his guys. They're just like, they're hilarious. I think he should have like, don't take the cheese. And it was just a bunch of mice getting trapped in rat traps one year. <laughs> he's crazy. Um, but that kind of wraps up our NFL talk. Uh, jumping over the NCAA, one of the big storylines from this week, especially with Big Ten Media Day coming out. Jim Harbaugh suspended four games over lying about level two NCAA violations in 2020. Now, what were these violations, you ask? He bought recruits cheeseburgers, which is ridiculous. Laughable, absolutely laughable. And it's not going to matter because the toughest opponent on their uh, during the first four weeks, their schedule is East Carolina. So unless the pirates come out and shock the world kind of a la Appalachian state a few yeah. years back, they'll be fine. If anything, it's only going to light a new fire into their ass to come out and play for their coach that yeah. didn't do anything wrong. Wow. You're really putting East Carolina over Rutgers. That's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess, that, I guess that's where we're at at this point in the big 10. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's stupid. I mean, you go over to the SEC and you see recruits randomly driving Hellcats back to school, back to high school. So it's pretty stupid. It kind of just seems like an NCAA making a move with all this NIL stuff to show they still have a little power. Either way, this is just stupid. Stupid, dumb, idiotic, however you want to describe it. The Wolverines will be fine. Go buy some more cheeseburgers. I'm not worried about them at all. And then obviously the other big story was the PJ Fleck news, which... Probably one of the weirdest and worst hit pieces I've seen in a while. Basically, someone trying to follow up this Northwestern story by making allegations that essentially just saying PJ Fleck is running a Division One football program. Yeah, to an extent. They also accused Fleck of sweeping some pretty serious injuries under the rug, yeah. which, if true, is a serious, serious problem. But some of the stuff they were describing in the allegations, to your point, sounds like running a college football program. The Fleck Bank, I got to say, that's that's really weird and also not the way to go about things, if that's true. Um, racking up points to, you know, cheat on drug tests and and get some more playing time. But Fleck's a weird dude. I, yeah. I would not be surprised if his culture is almost cult-like. Yeah. If some of the things that are describing, such as the injuries and the Fleck Bank, are true, that's cause for concern. But if it's just merely a cult-like culture where you buy in or you die, I think you see that in more than one college football program across the country. No, 100%. And I think, if anything, my biggest takeaway from this is that Fleck is an egotistical dork, which we already all knew. And I think my favorite thing to come out of this is you have to clap whenever PJ Fleck enters the room. And then the best part, if the cla- if the applause isn't loud enough for him, he has to come out and re-enter the room. That's so great. That's like that. That's like the NFL teams making the rookies go up there and and, and perform some songs, man. Just some crazy cult shit. That if it works, it works. They better win some games this year. Yeah, no. I mean, PJ Fleck just a clown and a dork, but that's nothing new. So that wraps up our kind of overall college football news. And now it's time to get into what I think is easily one of the most fascinating conferences. And I know that I've said this a couple times now, but this is one of the most fascinating conferences in college football this year. The Pack. 12. Pac-12 is going to be good, man. And I'm going to compare the Pac-12 to the, I wouldn't be surprised if they're getting their own 30 for 30 on the 2023 Pac-12 season being the last dance, so to speak, because this is probably the last year the Pac-12 is going to be a conference in general with Arizona and Boulder looking to go to the Big 12, Oregon and Washington exploring Big 10 options. But this, this uh, division, this conference is loaded this year. No, 100%. And I think you're going to actually see teams trying to play their way into the Big Ten, which I think is going to be kind of a fascinating storyline to see all year. So 
let's start with Washington USC because I think these are the two teams that a lot of people see as the front runners right now. Both teams have their eyes on the CFP, but they showed moments of real struggle last year. So I'm going to jump into Washington first. Michael Penix is awesome. 31 touchdowns, 4,000 plus yards to the air. They return one of the top receiving rooms in the U.S. in Rome Odozune and Jalen McMillan, both 1,000-yard guys. Cameron Davis looks to take over that lead running back role after rushing for 13 touchdowns last year. The concerns here are the O-line and the defense for me. Three starters lost on the offensive line, and the diva defense gave up an average of 20, 251 yards to the air last year. Those are my big things for Washington right now. They did lose some big pieces up front on the O-line with their center and their two guards. But they do return two potential all-pack 12 tackles, and that is key to have those edge pieces on your line to really bolster uh, the edge and keep Penix safe. Washington was number one in the country last year in tackles for loss allowed. They kept Penix nice and healthy back there, which yeah. was always the problem in Indiana. He was always a great quarterback, so much talent, he just couldn't stay on the field. Yeah. So the fact that they were able to protect him, he was able to show his true colors. My eyes dart to the defense also. We know the offense is going to be there. Washington and USC are going to have the two best offenses in the Pac-12. There is no disputing that. You look over the defense, I'm very high on the Husky defense, and here's why. Yeah. They didn't need a whole lot of changes when DeBoer you know, brought him and his new staff in there. But the secondary was a concern, and I think it still will be a concern. But the pass rush should be incredible this year. Yeah. Braylon Schreiss. Zion Tupeloa Fatui, those guys are NFL talents. Yeah. And you look at the linebacking core, they get Edifon Ulo Foshayo back this year. He missed all of 2022. It was great in 2021. He comes back. He's going to be a centerpiece of that defense. They get a transfer from USC and Raylan Goforth. He's phenomenal. I think the first and second levels of the defense, phenomenal. Secondary is a concern, but with how good the offense is going to be, Man, look out for the Huskies this year. Yeah, and I'm very high on their defense as well. The key stat for me right here is they improved to 2022 or they improved to 22.7 points per game in their final six games after giving up. What was it? I think I got 32.3 in their first six. So that's huge for them. Secondary is obviously a concern for me, but I think they're kind of weathering that storm with the pickup of Jabbar Muhammad from OK State. I think that's a big move for them. And I like what Keelan DeBoer DeBo is doing here. And Penix is going to be excited to watch if they can keep him safe. This team is going to be probably the team to beat in the Pac-12 for me. I would have to agree. And I think Kalen DeBoer does not get enough credit everyone's given Sonny Dykes, you know, all, you know, all of his flowers and rightfully so he took the TCU Horn Frogs to the national championship game in his first season, but DeBoer going, was it 10 and three, 11 and two in his first year at, at Washington, second best offense in the country, only behind USC. They're going to be exciting to watch. So let's, let's talk the schedule a little bit for me. The path is really there for them to just dominate division. They got to beat Utah at home. They got to beat USC. They got to beat Oregon State. But other than that, I'm not seeing a whole lot of challenge here for them. I, I think they realistically go 11-1. and one. Yeah. Uh, the, the open to their season is a, a little tough with Boise State at home. They're no pushover, but they'll win that football game. Oh, Same man. thing with Tulsa. And at Michigan State, the Spartans suck. We went yeah. over that weeks ago in our Big Time preview, but it's still a road game against a Big Ten team. If Washington comes out of there with a one to five point victory, I think that is totally fine. Don't hold it against them. Nice. Then they get Cal at home, a Cal Golden Bears team who is going to be more competitive than they have been in, in recent years, a team that I'm actually high on. Not to do anything special, but maybe make a bowl game. At Arizona, same kind of deal there, a, re a rebuilding program. You can't overlook that game. Then they get a bye week. Then they get Oregon at home. They should be coming into that Oregon game undefeated and if they beat the Ducks, which they will, in my opinion, 
Ben. That catapults them in the second half of the year. That is what I have circled on my calendar. October 14th to go along with November 4th and November 11th. Those are the three key weeks for the Huskies with Oregon at home, USC on the road in the Coliseum, and Utah at home. And you talk about that Oregon game. Coming out of that game, they get Arizona State and Stanford. So they are going to come after that game. If they win it, they're just going to keep rolling at USC, at Utah, or against Utah. The game I actually have circled here for me is November 18th at Oregon State, a team I'm super high on this year. I don't think it's I think I think Oregon State's for real and we'll get to them in a little bit. But I think that is a huge game for both teams, especially with Oregon State heading into that Civil War game right after that. I think the Washington Huskies have a really good chance to not only take this conference, but maybe even make a run at the pack at the college football playoff. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Heading over to USC. Best coach QB duo in college football. Third ranked scoring offense in the country. There's nothing else we can say about Caleb Williams. He is a proven guy. He is going to be the front runner for Heisman, if not the Heisman winner this year. I really love the wide receiver core they have here with Darian Singer, the guy they added from Arizona, and Mario Williams and Taj Washington are also no joke. Marshawn Lloyd is going to be holding it down in the backfield, but I expect them to do a little more of a committee thing. Caleb's also going to play a major role in that running game. But Gavin, here are my three things USC needs to do to make the college football playoff. Play well at the line of scrimmage. Stop losing to Utah and be better on defense. Especially, I'm going to harp on the defense and the line of scrimmage portion of what you just said. You got to keep 13 healthy back there. Caleb Williams is by far the best player in college football. It's not even close. Heisman front runner and barring an injury or a catastrophic regression, he's going to be the number one pick in the 2024 NFL draft. He is their team. You got to keep him healthy up front. The offensive line has to be good. They don't have to be great. They just have to be good. And then you look over to that defense, a defense that was top five in the country last year in takeaways. That's the reason they won so many games. But other than that, they were a, a, a past past rank 100 defense. I mean, Brutal. Couldn't, couldn't couldn't stop the pass. All, all the talent come from the transfer portal. The defensive line, just as bad as the offensive line, not very good at all. They reloaded on talent through the transfer portal again this year. I think the real problem, though, is Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator. That guy yeah. is so bad. Cannot coach football, let alone a defense. And yeah, consensus poverty defensive coordinator. So they're going to be giving up points. Offense needs to keep pace. That seat is scolding for Alex Grinch. And you mentioned it. The defense sucked last year. Key stat for me, they damn near gave up 30 points per game. You're not going to win this. This Pac-12 loaded at quarterback talent, giving up 30 points per game. 424 yards in total. Like, are you kidding me? But you mentioned the transfers. They dug deep. They got some guys, Bear Alexander, Mason Cobb, Christian Roland Wallace, I think will all make major impacts this year. For me right now, until I see them play defense, I'm going with Washington over USC. The better team will be ultimately the team that prevails in the line of scrimmage. Yeah, and I actually misspoke when I said they're bad against the pass. They were horrible against the run. I totally forgot about that Tulane Cotton Bowl disaster last year where they got they got ran 400 or over 300 yards in that Cotton Bowl. Really, really bad. They got steamrolled for 223 in the Pac-12 championship and Stanford and UCLA went for over 200 on them again during the regular season. Yeah. They gave up 4.9 yards or more per carry eight times last year. Yeah. Eight times that's that's not going to get them in a comfortable playoff none the least so here's my path schedule wise for usc to get this done they need to beat notre dame on the road that's going to be tough we'll get to notre dame eventually but they are their team that has a lot of hype around them this year utah and washington at home got to get those wins and you had better curb stomp the shit out of UCLA this year. You cannot have that game be as close as it was. Yeah, similar to Washington, they they will be going into the back half of their schedule at 6-0. They're going to beat San Jose State, Nevada, Stanford, 
they might score 200 points in those games. Yeah. Uh, they're going to beat Arizona State, going to beat Colorado, going to beat Arizona. First six games are a breeze. If they lose one of those, there's a serious problem. Then you get Notre Dame on the road, Utah at home. And the Utes struggle mightily to win out of Salt Lake City, but they stole the Trojans' number. You go into Berkeley and you play Cal, which, you know, you're the Trojans, you're looking at that and you're thinking, okay, you know, almost like a bye week. We can rest up because we got yeah. Washington next week. No, you can't. You're coming off a game against Utah, a game that's going to be physical. Utah controls line of scrimmage, and USC is bad line of scrimmage. Yep. They're going to be worn down. Then they go into Berkeley and play a defensive-minded Cal team. That's not a wear-down game. And then yep. you come off of that, and you play Washington at home. Then you go on the road to play Oregon, and then come back home to finish off UCLA. The back half of their schedule is as hard as any in college football. And I think that Cal game also gets underrated too because people forget that Cal is DBU when it comes to defensive backs. They have a really talented secondary this year. And for a quarterback that's going to be throwing the ball a lot, that could be a problem for them. Obviously, we're not saying Cal is going to beat USC by any means, but that is a game where they could potentially get trapped in. Now, you mentioned Utah. I think they are also another fascinating story this year. Coming off two consecutive Pac-12 titles, Cam Rising is a very good quarterback but he's coming off an ACL injury and a brutal one at that. Their priority has to be making sure that Cam Rising is ready to go week one if they want to compete in this division. They return some talent at wide receiver and Devon Vele and Brandon Quaith. Uh, Jaquindon Jackson is also going to be a huge piece of this offense this year. Nine scores on only 78 attempts last year. And this team's going to be unreal at the line of scrimmage. I mean, they have the deepest O-line and D-line rooms, I think, in the Pac-12. Uh, headlined by Jordan Tuafu and the front four is just going to be a problem for quarterbacks this year. With the exception of Alabama, you Utah has the best line of scrimmage game in the country. And I don't think it's particularly close. You mentioned Cam Rising, keeping him healthy is going to be a challenge. Well, not a challenge, but a necessity. If there's a team equipped to do it, it's Utah. Then you look over to the defense, they're going to win the line of scrimmage there too. They're going to win the secondary. They're going to be physical in the secondary. Their linebackers are going to be unbelievable. Kareem Reed, strong hitter. Lander Barton, great stat sheet guy. It's going to be better than last year. The problem with Utah is keeping Cam Rising healthy and their schedule. I think also another underrated problem for Utah is the red zone. 30 scores and 43 trips. They're going to need to improve on that number. Also, I can't remember what year it's since I read it. I read it and forgot it, but Outside of Salt Lake City against top 25 teams, they're 3-13 and in, I think, the past five or six years. Two of those wins being the past two conference championship games, and one of them, I think, last year, not sure. Bottom line, they can't win outside of Salt Lake City. So if they're going to repeat as Pac-12 champs, they need to get maybe at least one, maybe two big wins on the road. And we mentioned their schedule earlier. This thing is difficult. Florida at home, at Baylor, Weber State, fuck that, UCLA, at Oregon State, California, at USC, Oregon, Arizona State, at Washington, at Arizona, and then you finish the season at Colorado. I like how that schedule winds down for them, but that beginning and that middle portion is going to be a dogfight. Yeah, they open up in Florida, a team that they lost to last year uh, on the opening week of college football, and then you go into Waco. Now, I have them winning both of these games. It might not be pretty, That's but I think, they, I think they win both of them. Then my eyes, again, as we talk about them being terrible outside of Salt Lake City, my eyes dart to the road games. On the road, they have Oregon State, a team that's going to be very good. On the road, they have USC. What else needs to be said? On the road, they have Washington. Those are three games that if they want to win the Pac-12 championship again, they got to take two of those, you'd have to think. Yeah, and I think this all really depends on Cam Rising being ready to go week one. You need to set the tone in that Florida game, and then you need to go into Baylor and get a win. I think Jaquindon Jackson can carry you for a while because I think he's that good of a running back, 
but you don't have Kincaid anymore. Your quarterback room besides Cam Rising, it's very thin. Like, you need this guy to be back there calling plays. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit higher in the quarterback room than you are. Um, they got a freshman just came in who should be decent, but it's it's about it's about the start of their season, I think, in my opinion. Like we just talked about, you look at Florida, you look at Baylor, need to win those games. If they're going in to Corvallis and Oregon State with any, you know, any thought of, oh, this team might not be what it was last year, they're in deep shit. Oh, no, 100%. Now, you mentioned Oregon State. That is a team I am super high on this year. They're coming off back-to-back scenes where they're going bowling. They finally have a quarterback in DJ Uyunglele, who, I'm not going to lie, I'm always going to ride with DJ Uyunglele until, until he proves he's bad. I just love this guy that much. Um, I truly believe Clemson gave up on him. It's not the other way around. And he's going on a revenge tour this season. He will share the backfield with a budding star and running back in Damian Martinez, who I think is going to run all over the Pac-12 this year. Receivers Silas Bolden and Anthony Gold are great options on the outside, and they can be involved in the running game. But we talked about this earlier. This conference is going to be one in the trenches, and Oregon State, hands down, has the best offensive line in the Pac-12. Hands down. That's from my eyes when immediately also. What carried this team last year to their success was the defense. This year, I, I can't wait to watch this offense. I, I'm glad that you're high on the Beavers because I, I can't wait to see him play. DJ Uyagale, people are going to hate on him. Oh, he's not that good. Well, everyone said the same thing about Bo Nix leaving the SEC, going to the Pac-12, and he turned out just fine. More than fine, actually. One of the best quarterbacks in the country playing his way to the NFL right now. Oregon State has a, has a budding star in defensive coordinator, Trent Bray. Great guy to have with the helm there leading that defense. What concerns me about the Beavers is that defense. Yep. They were so good last year. Number one in the, in the Pac-12 in total defense last year. That's going to be really hard to replicate. They were number one in the nation last year in red zone defense. First in the Pac-12 against the run. The problem is they're losing five of their top seven tacklers. They return nine starters on defense, but they're losing the guys in the middle. And that's going to be tough to overcome. Yeah, there's a gaping hole linebacker. That's my biggest criticism of this this year. But I think if they can get that going, and you mentioned their defensive coordinator, this team has so, their ceiling, I think, is is Pac-12 championship. Not winning it, potentially, per se, but they're going to go to that game, I think, either way. Their schedule has them poised to make a run at this Pac-12 championship. With Utah and Washington at home, those are their major tests. And of course, the Civil War is going to be going through Eugene this year. It's going to be so much fun to watch this team play. And I'm going all in on Jordan, on Jonathan Smith. I really like this team. I think the Beavers are going to be a problem in the Pac-12 this year. You said they're sealing at the Pac-12 championship. You call me crazy. They're sealing the college football playoff. And here's yep. why. Their schedule is a freaking cakewalk. San Jose State, UC Davis, San Diego State, at Washington State, they get Utah at home, which, as we just mentioned, they suck on the road. The Utes yep. do. And that's coming off, as I just listed off, four cakewalks to open the season. Then they go on the road to Cal. Got to win that game. Cannot lose to the Golden Bears. But once you get past that, UCLA at home, very winnable. Arizona at home. Colorado on the road. Stanford at home. They could be getting Washington in Corvallis on November 18th at 10-0. Yeah, that that is a very realistic possibility here. You beat Washington, get to eleven and zero, and then go go to Eugene play a civil war. Man, that that's that's that excites me. 
Dude, I got goosebumps just going up my arm right now thinking about this. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think this Oregon game is going to be, I think rivalry in general this year is going to be something else. But yeah, I really, really love this Beavers team. And that's got to take me into the team in Eugene. I do not, I have a lot of question marks about this Oregon team. Uh, this team seemed destined to return to the Pac-12 championship last year, but they dropped two of their last three to Washington, Oregon State, the team we just mentioned. Bo Nix obviously had a breakout season. No one saw that coming. Um, they retained a ton of talent off on offense, including Bucky Irving and Troy Franklin. Key contributors on the offense at that average 500 yards per game, no less. But this team's Achilles heel was the defense last year. Another team in the Pac-12 that allowed close to 30 points per game. And it felt like they just got punched in the face against Georgia to open the year. And just that completely wiped this defense's confidence. Yeah, it, it wiped their confidence. It wiped... The the stat sheet, the stats are really skewed because of that one game. And they certainly didn't get better on defense. They lose Christian Gonzalez, you know, New England Patriot. They lose Noah Sewell, a centerpiece of their linebacking core. I, the offense is going to be fine. It's going to be a top 10 offense in the country. The problem, though, and my thing with Oregon, no matter how good their offense is, it's still going to be the third best offense in their own conference. Washington and yeah. USC are going to have better offenses than them. USC's defense is worse than Oregon's. It's 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 horrible. Like there's there's no way around it. Yeah. But Oregon's used to dominating this conference because their offense has been so good. Now everyone's caught up, and the defense isn't good enough to propel them forward. They have to replace four starters on the offensive line. That shouldn't be a problem. They went out into the transfer portal and loaded up on talent, getting a former Texas star, Junior Angelau. Uh, Josh Connolly's going to be great. Uh, a Johnny Cornelius from Rhode Island. He'll be fine. Not worried about the offense. They'll put up points. It's the defense, yes. and especially the secondary. The secondary lacks any talent whatsoever, and they could not get into the backfield last year. If you cannot sack the quarterback, you're going to have big problems with the quarterback talent in this conference. Yeah, you mentioned that backfield, 18 sacks. That's their lowest mark in three decades for a team that I think is just a perpetual machine when it comes out to giving good defensive ends and NFL talent. Yeah, you mentioned it. it's like USC to me. They have to prove it on the defensive side for me to buy into the Oregon Ducks, and I, I just don't see the talent right here on paper, you know? Jumping into their schedule, and we have September 9th circled on our calendar. I think our season, their season begins and ends at Texas Tech. We love the Red Raiders, man. We love the Red oh Raiders. Give me the Red Raiders in that game, but and that, that game that, is going to set the tone for the entire season. Yeah, it's 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 the Georgia game from last year, just on a, obviously the much smaller scale. No one's comparing the Red Raiders to the Bulldogs. Don't don't get shit twisted here. But if Oregon loses that football game, poof, yeah. that that sets the tone for the rest of their season. Yeah, because that right now I'm looking at they're at Washington, they're at Utah, they do get USC at home, and then they have to wrap it up going through, they have to wrap it up in Eugene going against Oregon State. So, man, it's just, it's such a tough year for the Oregon Ducks, and I think they got a new offensive coordinator, UTSA, great last year, but we as we talked about, it, this defense needs to get better in a year, and that's a lot to ask, same as it's a lot to ask at USC. But yeah, I just don't see it happening for the Ducks. It's a lot to ask. They they get the benefit of getting – actually, no, they don't get Washington at home. I'm reading that wrong. They get USC at home, which is great, and everyone knows Oregon's great at Autzen. They've lost once there since 2019. That came last year against Washington. Their schedule and the defense just make me not want to buy into this team. You know yeah. what game I'm looking at? I'm looking at November 18th at Arizona State, and here's why. That is a perennial trap game. You're coming yeah. off USC at home – especially if they beat the Trojans riding high, 
and potentially looking ahead to the Civil War the next week at home again. Yep. Some Devils could come out and surprise somebody. Yeah, and you know what game I have kind of circled on that schedule as well? Another team that has all offense and no defense. It can really mess up Oregon in a shootout. Washington State. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They so, do get the cruise to home, but Washington State could could cause some problems this year. No, 100% with Cam Ward. And we mentioned Washington State. I think they're one of three teams who I think can cause problems for the big dogs. And those three teams are UCLA, Washington State, and Arizona. All three have very talented quarterbacks coming in with Dante Moore at UCLA, Cam Ward at Wazoo. And I, I'm a little high on Jason Jane Delora. He needs to clean up the mistakes on offense, but I think he could be a really good quarterback with the tools he has around him. UCLA just has the talent, the skill positions offensively. And I think at USC, I think UCLA could really, I think that USC game is going to be really competitive. And I mean, I expect USC to curb stomp them and they need to curb stomp them. But UCLA, if USC's defense is still not up to par, that offense and Chip Kelly's offenses are always just explosive enough to get it done. Yeah. UCLA also went out and did damage in the transfer portal. They've got the fourth yeah. best transfer class in the Pac-12. Now, obviously not great considering they're still fourth in their own conference, but for a team that's projected to be a mid-tier in the conference, that you know, you you gotta love to see that. And I look at Washington State to go back to the Cougars. Cam Ward, love him, love him. The quarterback play in this conference is just unbelievable. It's crazy. And their offensive coordinator, Ben Arbuckle, who is this guy? Who is this guy? He's a 27-year-old genius. That's who he is. <laughs> been, been a co-offensive coordinator at Western Kentucky last year. Everyone knows the Hilltoppers just score points at will. Yeah, If you get into a shootout with the Cougars, you could be playing with fire. You could absolutely be playing with fire. And I talked about that Oregon game. I think... Oregon is the trap game or the game where the Washington Cougars can make the most noise at Washington. I expect them to get ran in the apple cup uh, at UCLA, man. I really hope they don't give Wisconsin any trouble this year. That would be embarrassing if we had to walk into Pullman and just get our shit blown. But Oregon is the big trap game for them. But here's my favorite trap game. I have October 7th, USC versus Arizona. And Arizona will win this game if three things happen. USC's defense is still not improved. Jane Delora cleans up his mistakes. And Arizona plays even a smidge of defense. <laughs> even a smidge. Yeah, that's also a revenge game for the Wildcats going up against Dorian Singer, who I think is going to be the best receiver in the conference this year. A lot of trap games out there. The Pac-12 is known for beating up on each other. It's just going to happen at a much bigger scale this year because the conference is so much better. No, this is going to be such a fun conference. And we were talking about earlier, Pac-12 after dark, baby. It's going to mean something this year. <laughs> and that is just a great feeling to have. You're going to come out of that marquee SEC game being like, oh, man, I think my day is done. Nope. You have competitive matchups all throughout the Pac-12 all season long. Last team we got to talk about here. Biggest storyline, one of the bigger storylines in the Pac-12, even though they're probably going to end up in last. Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes. Heading to the Big 12 next year. Three returning starters on both sides of the ball. He got everyone out of there. This team straight up lacks depth. Last I checked, I don't think they've filled out their roster entirely, but this team is just riddled with storylines. I mean, Deion Sanders came in and he said, I'm bringing in luggage and it's Louie. He brought in his son, Shadir, who I really like, but I got to see him play in the Power Five. Obviously, Travis Hunter will be electric for them this year. He could play on both sides of the ball and it will be phenomenal. I'm honestly just excited to see like what this team is going to look like nothing like we saw last year but that's because they're not returning anybody you gotta remember this team went one and 11 last year you're essentially building a college football team from scratch what you're doing yeah. which is it, it's not going to turn out well in year one the storylines may be there with 
Dion, Coach Prime, and having a son quarterback and whatnot. They'll be they'll they'll win a game or two, maybe three. But the offense was so bad last year, and the defense was worse, <laughs> which is which is saying a lot. You got to rush the passer. You bring in a few good linebackers, and Travis Hunter will be good at corner. He'll be he'll be an NFL corner one day. But you're building a team from scratch. It's gonna take some years. Yeah, and I think we're talking about years coming, but I think years coming they're gonna be in the Pac-12, and I think Dion Sanders is just from a brand standpoint because I think the Big 12 is going to need a guy who can kind of lead that division to keep it prominent, especially with the Big 10 and the SEC looking like they're going to be the marquee divisions in college football, or the marquee conferences in college football. I think Deion Sanders will be able to recruit at a really good level and maintain kind of their profile in the Big 12, which I think would be huge for the Big 12 because the Big 12 can brand themselves right. They can really make this a big three instead of a big two. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, that kind of wraps it up for our Pac-12 talk thus far. But before we get into the final standings, we got to talk about players to watch. And my first guy is Damian Martinez. I mentioned him earlier. I I think he's getting enough love, but I just got to reiterate this. 982 yards, seven scores as a freshman. The kid has incredible field vision. And when you combine that with the best O-line in the Pac-12, oh man, it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch him play this year. And he has the potential to be not only one of the best running backs in the Pac-12, but one of the best running backs in college football. Yeah. Yep. And it's all got to do with that O-line. Four stars coming back. Beaver's going to be good. Yep. Very good. Who are you liking, Gav? My eyes immediately dart towards a big name. Been mentioned a couple of times. Dorian Singer. I won't talk too much on him because everyone knows the talent he has there. I also love DJ Uyagale. Again, I won't touch them too much because everyone knows what he's going to do. The name I will throw out there. A guy that I like. Sticking with the theme of great quarterback play in this conference. Look out for Sam Jackson the fifth up in Berkeley with Ooh. the Cal Bears. He's coming over from TCU. Last year's starter, Jack Plummer, now at Louisville with Jeff Brom over there. He was their third stringer last year, but one of the top dual threat QBs coming out of high school, 5'11", 195 pounds, to go along with a defense that should be pretty good this year, given some versatility on offense, Sam Jackson could do some stuff. I like that pick because especially I think Cal was the one team I saw in this division where I was kind of scratching my head at their quarterback room, but I like the pick of Sam Jackson. I think that's a really good one. Yep. Now, we talked about USC's defense being a key for them to win this season, and that's going to start with limiting the passing game in a conference loaded with QB talent. And my guy is Kalen Bullock. He's going to yep. step it up real big for this team. Five interceptions last year. I think he'll continue to be a great ball hawk while also making making some big plays and coverage. He's going to be a tone setter for that secondary. And especially if they want to be good, I think they're going to have to rely on Kalen Bullock heavy and he could easily play his way into some serious draft talk. The other guy I have down here is Carson Steele over at UCLA. Huge season last year at Ball State. 1,500 yards on the ground paired with 14 scores. He's going to be sharing the backfield TJ Harden, and he's mostly a running back. He doesn't really catch the ball a lot, but when this guy gets in the open field, it is a sight to see. It is. I remember watching, you and I were watching Ball State football for absolutely no reason. Oh, no, that was awesome. I remember that night, man. And Carson Steele (laughs) pops up on the screen, and we're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yep, and now he's wearing blue and blue, man. He'll be good. He'll be very good this year. I'm excited to see him in primetime. It'll be fun. Let's Let's get on these final standings projections this is what i feel pr- this is probably the one i feel most confident in right now i got washington state at one oregon not, state at two. Uh, not washington state washington all right my bad washington university not washington state holy shit oregon state at two usc at three utah at four oregon at five ucla at six washington state at seven arizona and asu at eight and nine cal at 10 colorado at 11 and stanford 
holding up the rear at 12. Yeah, top and bottom, completely agree. Uh, I got Washington as the best team in this conference right now. The offense is going to be almost as good as USC's. The defense is going to be exponentially better. That's the reason I have them at the top. Two through five. Here's the thing about the Pac-12. I think the Pac-12 champion goes to the college football playoff at the end of at the end of the year. I completely agree. Pac-12 champions going to be playing for national championship or the opportunity of national championship. Two through five, they can all be ten and two. Mm-hmm. But you look at USC, Utah, Oregon State, Oregon. I think all of those teams go ten and two this year. USC's back half of the schedule is just way too difficult to win eleven games. Yep. Oregon State's first ten games are way too easy to win anything less than nine. Utah has some incredibly tough road matchups that are going to prohibit them from winning eleven games. And Oregon, we already talked about them with the defensive struggles. My standings go: Washington, USC, Utah, Oregon State, Oregon, UCLA as the first set, as the first six. I only put Utah ahead of Oregon State. Again, I'm really high on the Beavers because the Beaver schedule is so easy. The tiebreaker, when it comes down to, is going to bite them in the butt. At the end of the day, the most important takeaway is we both have Washington on top. It's their conference to lose, not according to the bookmakers, but according to us. That's all that matters. Go Huskies. Go Huskies. And Michael Penix is going to be awesome to watch this year. Pac-12 after dark, baby. That's what it's all about. That wraps up our show this week. I hope you guys enjoy. We put in a lot of work on this one. Had a lot of fun with it. And uh, we'll see you next next week for the ACC. Come on. Oh, we, we throw Notre Dame into the mix of the ACC? Oh, we absolutely are. We got to talk about Sam Hartman in that situation over there. An Irish baby. Yes, sir. See y'all next week.